Hello, friends. The show is Stand to Reason, and I'm your host, Greg Kokel. And uh, if you want to call in to um, raise an issue, um, ask a question, give me a piece of your mind, because that's what I intend to do on my side, you can dial up 855-243-9975. That's our uh, standard number here. Uh, You'd have to do it during showtime, which is... 4 until 6 p.m. Tuesday afternoons, Pacific time. If you're outside the U.S., the number's 562. Use the international code 1, then 562-424-8229. Haven't got an international call in quite a while. I think the last one we had was from Australia. Um, and it's been a long time since I've been to Australia. Last time I was there was through was my daughter had my fifteen year old had just been born. And uh I worked really hard in Melbourne or Melbourne, I guess is the way they pronounce it. And uh then I had a couple of days on my own and it was the beginning of the uh Australian Open and so I, I bought a gate ticket as which is basically you want to get into the thing, you just get into the venue, the big Get in the gate, and then you can walk around to all these courts, and you can watch all of these games being played or people practice, and you see all the big shots up close and personal. You can even see the spit fly, and uh, that's when I realized just how hard these tennis players crush the ball. I played tournament tennis for 20 years, but, man, I never saw anything like this. So, anyway, that's... That was the last international call I had was from Australia. But if you uh, would like to chat, um, once again, one five six two four two four eight two two nine. Let's just jump into calls right now, and uh, I have Abel here in Mississippi. Let me get your button there, Abel. Welcome to the show. Hey, hey, Mister Coco. Hey there. Uh, I was wondering, uh, what extent does or what extent of power does Satan have on this world? Like, or what extent of influence does he have? Because all around us, I can always see like something Satan's doing, or something bad he's doing, or some harm he's causing. Like, what's the extent of that? Like, when does it like stop? When does the influence of Satan stop, or where does it stop? Yes, sir. Well, the when is when he is dispatched um, at the end of the age. He is bound, depending on how you read Revelation, he may be bound for a thousand years and then released, where he causes some more trouble, and then he is judged. Ultimately, though, however one reads that, there is going to be an end to Satan's influence on the earth. He will be judged and then cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And the second ever is actually superfluous, because ever pretty much covers it. Um, That's when it's going to be over with. And so, on this earth, in this life, we have to always be on our guard against his influence. And Peter makes this clear in 1 Peter chapter 5, be on your guard, be of sober mind, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, he's dangerous, and he's on the move. He's on the prowl. Now, how dangerous is he? He is 
but I am convinced, Abel, he is far more dangerous than any of us realize. Okay? And um, part, part of the reason I say this is because of the extent of his influence. So what is that? Well, the extent of his influence is everyone and everything not rescued by Jesus. Jesus said, uh, I think it was Jesus, or maybe it was John. Anyway, the Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Right? You know that passage? Yes, sir. First John. Okay, so, therefore, whatever the the, the devil's uh, influence is, we have a greater one to protect us. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be uh, run into trouble with the devil. Of course we can. That's why Peter tells us to be sober. But we have a, a protector in Jesus, all right? However, with regards to the rest of the world, it says there's four verses that uh, I'll give you that tell you how thoroughgoing the influence of the devil is. Second Corinthians chapter 4, it says that the devil blinds the eyes of the unbelievers, so they cannot see him. So he blinds the eyes of unbelievers, so that when it comes to unbelievers, what is the extent of Satan's influence? He blinds their eyes. Okay? Um, it also says that in Second Timothy, the last verse of the second chapter, uh, Tim, Paul tells Timothy, look, we should be really nice and patient with non-believers uh, in order that maybe God will grant them repentance and they will come to their senses. Okay, notice that. Something is twisted about their thinking, and they need God's help to break through that. All right? Well, what's twisted about their thinking? And then Paul says, having been held captive by the devil to do his will. Okay? In uh, Revelation chapter 12, I think, verse 9, it says that Satan deceives the whole world. Now, of course, it's, it's a, that is hyperbole. That's an exaggeration, because generally speaking, the world is deceived, but the exception would be those who are protected by Jesus, because another verse lets us know that. We, we, we're not we are not under that same deception. But we can be deceived, but we are not under the world's deception because we are believers. And uh, then finally in John, 1 John chapter 5, it's, uh, uh, it says the whole world... How does it put that now? i got to look it up. It's in the... the i got to find it. I think the whole world is in the power of the evil one. So those are—I'll get it for you in a second. But there's these these passages that make it really clear that the devil is running everything. Not good for the world. Okay, let me see it. We know the. No, no, no. Uh, it's right there at the end. Born of God. 
we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 19 of chapter 5 of 1 John. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So he, he, he holds, they lie in the power of the evil one. He's deceived the whole world. They are held captive by him to do his will. And he blinds the minds of the unbelievers or the eyes of the unbelievers. Wow, that's pretty powerful. That's pretty thoroughgoing. And by God's grace, we are rescued from the majority of that. Our eyes are not blinded, but we can be deceived. And we can be tempted into sin, because he's the tempter. And when we believe lies, we're more vul- his lies, we're more vulnerable to give in to temptation. So that's pretty bad, isn't it, Abel? Yes, sir. Um, pretty extreme. So when we think about making a difference for Christ in this world, we understand that we're up against a very difficult foe, which is why we need the Holy Spirit to make the difference. Make sense? Yes, sir. Anything else, Abel? Oh, no, sir. Thank you. So I don't know the full extent of Satan's power, but it's pretty, it's pretty extensive. And by the way, some people have wondered whether Satan can read our minds. And I had a brother, a good brother and a smart brother, who thought, who was very adamant that he could not. And um, and it, it doesn't seem to me that makes sense, because he's the tempter, right? So how did, how is Satan tempt very effectively if he has no access to our minds. You know, no access to, in a certain sense, put thoughts in our minds. In fact, wasn't, I'm thinking about it now, wasn't Judas? Um, didn't, didn't, the, doesn't the text say that the devil put it into Judas's mind to betray Jesus? Oh, yes, sir. I read it this morning in my Bible. Oh, you, t- this morning? Yes, sir. I read my Bible every morning. Well, I, uh, that's great, but it's amazing to me that what you read in your Bible this morning was that verse that I just mentioned. That's what's amazing to me. Yes, sir. Okay, so he does he does have access at least to put something into our mind, and it seems to me that the things that he puts into our minds are things that are going to be consistent with our fallen natures and desires anyway. So he's not going to be putting into our mind uh, some something that doesn't isn't germane to our our life at the moment that might be sinful so it seems to me not only can he put things into our mind but he can see what's in the mind already and that's how he is able to effectively tempt us speculation a little bit there but it just seems to make sense based on what we know about the devil all righty yes sir thank you okay Okay, Abel, look forward to chatting with you next time, okay? Yes, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was a pretty strong conversation I had with my friend. He did not think Satan would get into our head, but I don't know. What's a temptation? Temptation is when when you are uh, induced to something sinful. There's an inducement to sin. Now, I guess you could say you, you if you place something in front of our eyes— like maybe some, something that is uh, um, 
sexual for a man, that that would be an inducement for that man to think sexual thoughts that are not appropriate. So there it is, no access to the mind there that's necessary. We could tempt other people with things like that and induce them to sin without being in their mind. But it seems to me the kinds of things that Satan persistently tempts us with, the way he tempts us requires or entails that he has access to our mind. So I, And plus you got Judas, who, uh, who the text actually says, Satan put it in his mind to betray Christ. So there you go. It's pretty spooky. Which is mine. We, which is why, we should have our defenses up, be mindful, and 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 uh, keep prayed up, and be careful to be close to God to protect us from those inducements. So let's say uh, in Calgary, Canada, here is Glenn. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Mister Coco. How are you, sir? Good. Good. Um, my question is uh, from Genesis chapter 5, Okay, where it says, uh, starting in verse 1, this is the document containing the family records of Adam. On the day that God created man, he made, it, he made him in the likeness of God. He created him male and female. Uh, when they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, mm-hmm. and named him Seth. Uh-huh. So that that says that Seth was made in the image of Adam, not in the image of God. Now, there's a friend of mine who thinks, based on partly on that verse, that the fall was drastic enough that it can no longer be said that we're made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering what you think of that. Well, um, I th- okay, go ahead. Well, yeah, just um, like, yeah, are there passages that say that we are still made in the image of God? Yeah, uh, I think your friend is mistaken, and there is, it's possible to read the passage you just identified, Genesis 5, 1 through 3, in a way that doesn't conflict with that notion. There is something true about Adam in his invisible self that is like God. It is the image of God in Adam. Okay? Now, uh, so Adam is in the image of God. Now, do you think that means his physical body? No. Okay, good. So something non-physical about Adam is like God. All right? Now, when are you, do you have any children? No. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> okay, you are a child of your parents. Right. Okay, so you are you, you, when they g- gave birth to you, do you bear their physical image? Yeah. Yes, you do. So you are human like they are. So as a human being, you bear the image of your parents. But if your parents are made in the image of God in an invisible sense, then they can make you in the image of them in the physical sense, and you're still in the image of God 
in the invisible sense. So In other words, can you run that by me once more? Can I say that again, did you say? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So there are, the, what we come to so far is there are two different images here. There's the image of God in man, and then there's the image of man in the other humans that man reproduces, like you right. from your parents. So there is an image of God in man, that gets passed down. Because remember, Adam was made in the image of God, and all these creatures reproduce after their own kind. So they make other creatures like them. So if Adam is made in the image of God, spiritually, if you will, in the invisible sense, he reproduces something that is physically like him, but also bears the same invisible image of God that he had. So every child is in both the image of God through Adam and the image of Adam, that is, being a human image. There are two images here. Make sense? Yeah. Okay, now, so so that's how I can read this. Yes, this is, uh, he created a male and female. He blessed them, named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, I'm just reading your verses, he became the father of a son in his own likeness. Well, what likeness does he have in mind? His whole human likeness. His human likeness is a soul made in the image of God and a body that looked like Adam. So the soul looked like God and the body looked like Adam. So that Seth was made in the image of Adam in his likeness entails or includes both the image of God that Adam had in his soul, and the human image of his body that he had, that he reproduced in his son, Seth. There's okay. two two images, and they both get passed down. Now, I just want to put a nail in the coffin, so to speak, on this one, <clears throat> because if you turn your your pages, a couple of pages, to chapter 9 of Genesis— all right, now this is after the flood. So if it's after right. the flood, then this is after Adam and after Seth, and this is later. Okay, now if if your friend is right, that means that no human being after Seth or Adam, after Adam was made in the image of God, they were all just in the image of Adam. Correct? Right. Okay, so chapter 9, after the flood, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like chapter 1 of Genesis, where that command was given. Okay, if you move down to verse 6, though, he gives a, God gives a directive. He says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Okay, so this is the first provision for capital punishment. If a man sheds another man's blood, then he his blood is shed by man. That's the punishment. This is where capital punishment comes from. What is the reason why, if a person kills somebody else, that they have to sacrifice their own life? It's in the next verse. For in the image of God he made man. 
So let me ask you, Glenn, do you think this verse demonstrates that even after the fall and even after the flood, human beings were still in the image of God? That does seem to seem to imply that, doesn't it? Say again? That, that does seem to imply that they're still made in the image well, of God. Well, it, it, I think it's a, l- a little stronger than imply. For <laughs> in the image of God, God, he made man. Okay. And then he repeats the command to be fruitful, multiply, uh, populate you. Otherwise, the, the logic that says that we that, that says capital punishment wouldn't apply because that's the reasoning he gives in the verse. Yes, if we were not, if I understand your point, if we were not still made in the image of God, then capital punishment would not be appropriate. But capital punishment is appropriate because we are made in the image of God. Now, you might want to check in a cross-reference, and I I haven't done this, but you might want to check in a cross-reference on the image of God. Let me see, 6a, Exodus 21, Leviticus 24. There's a couple of other references, Numbers 25, and my Bible, a cross-reference, um, oh, wait a minute, that's B. I'm, I'm reading the wrong one. I need a magnifying glass. No, it takes us back to Genesis 1, 26 and 27. There may be other places where the concept of an image of God is repeated in Scripture. But here, clearly, it's right there. Chapter 9, verse 6. Being um, Human beings are being described as <clears throat> made in God's image and therefore deserve protection, and this is after the fall. So we know that those after the fall are still made in God's image. It is, uh, they are ma- uh, marred and broken, but the image is still there. That's what gives them their value. And uh, in the case of the passage that you read at first in chapter 5, it's just saying that there is, that Seth bears the same image that Adam bore. And Adam bore two images, the image of God in his soul and the image of man in his physical self. And that's what Seth God. So I, God. And so I, I don't think there's any problem here. Okay. All right, Thank Glenn? You. All right. So um, just I'm wondering, do you have more people waiting more calls? I actually don't at this point. I need to go to break, but if you want, I'll put you on hold, and uh, we can come back if you want to chat a little bit more. Yeah, because I got another question. Okay, that's fine. Do I push the top button, Amy, for hold? Oh, Amy's going to put you on hold, and we'll go to break. Okay. Okay, back with you in a moment. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Stay with us. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, red pen logic has grown in popularity. 
Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Many people claim that if abortion is made illegal, women will be forced to get dangerous back alley abortions and end up injuring or killing themselves. Well, how do you graciously respond to such a claim? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. You can take Stand to Reason with you through our mobile apps, available for free from the App Store or the Google Play Store. The Quick Reference app gives you short, easily accessible courses on our most popular topics like tactics, homosexuality in the Bible, morality, the story of reality, and many more. The Stand to Reason app has all our latest content available at your fingertips. You can listen to our podcasts, check the blog, and access timely and practical resources. They're free, so download the apps today on the App Store or the Google Play Store and start carrying Stand to Reason with you everywhere you go. If you enjoy our apps, you can help other people find them by rating them on the App Store or the Google Play Store. Well, we are entering into a new season for reality. We have a whole new lineup uh, starting in September, towards the end of September, for uh, Southern California. We'll be actually meeting at uh, Biola University uh, for this year's reality, Southern Cal. And then we'll be in Seattle. It will be in Minneapolis. And then next spring, we'll be in Dallas. And then we'll be in Augusta, Georgia. We'll be Philly. we got a whole new lineup. The, uh, the, the theme this year for reality is man or maker who says who you are. And we're going to have Sean McDowell there, Lanesh Garrison, we'll have Christopher Yuan, we'll have Tripp and Megan Allman. Uh, I mean, and all of the Standard Reason crowd will be there. So this is going to be a tremendous event. I just saw the first email that came down to me because I get these things too, even though, you know, I'm already going. I don't have to sign up. Uh, and it looks great. So I suggest that you go to re- realityapologetics.com for all the details and all the dates. California will be September 22nd and 23rd. Okay. Washington, October 13 and 14. And Minnesota will be in November the 10th and the 11th. That's a little earlier than usual. Usually it's the very last week. And uh, a couple of years ago we had snow. But, uh, then Texas in February and Pennsylvania in March and Georgia in April. You can get all that detail at realityapologetics.com. We got Glenn still on board with us from Calgary, and he wisely asked, anybody else waiting? And I said, no. And he said, can I ask more questions? I said, sure. So here here you go, Glenn. Your turn. Thank you. Sure. Okay. So in uh, in Numbers chapter 5, Numbers. Starting in verse 11. Like, it's okay. a fairly long passage, so I won't read it. But okay. basically what, what's happening is this is the jealousy ritual. If a man suggests, uh, suspects that his wife has been unfaithful. Oh, yeah, him, right. They are to uh, to write her. They're, they're supposed to have this water 
and uh, that she drinks this bitter water, whatever, right? Yes, where some of the dust from the floor is put in the water, and the, the ink from the well is, is the ink from the uh, the writing is put in the water. Right. It seems to me, God is the 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 uh, treatment that God is is prescribing. In, in, it assumes she's she's guilty until proven innocent, because it's it's giving her these punishments when it, she hasn't been found guilty yet. I kind of uh, well, have a problem. Yeah, that. that isn't the way I read this passage. I read this passage as a means by which to determine whether she's guilty or not. Now, it's a kind of an odd ritual where you, you know, write this stuff down and you put it in the whatever and drinks the water, and then what happens? It, it, it strikes me this is some kind of supernatural event that takes place that God is involved with, the water of bitterness, whatever. But I don't know that it's presuming that she is what, guilty. Where would the, you find the dust, the dust from the floor is put in the water. That's harmful. The the ink from the uh, from right. her charge is put in the water as well. So she's been given these punishments, and she hasn't been found guilty yet. This is to determine, like you said, to determine that she's guilty. Well, wait a minute. I well, I don't know if she's asked to drink the water based on this <clears throat> this this compote that w- they put together. However, how is that punishment? That's just to determine. The response, of course, I haven't read this passage in a while, but it seems to me um, uh, that that uh, it is meant to de- it, the, the result of having done this will be some kind of in- indication. Um, let me just look at this here. Uh, the priest shall verse sixteen bring her near, have her stand before the Lord, and will take the water and uh, take some of the dust off the floor, like you mentioned, have the woman stand before the Lord, um, and then let her hair out, and uh, then there'll be an offering, and the hand of the priest will be the water of the bitterness that brings a curse. He will take an oath and shall take, if no man is lain with you, and if you have not gone astray into uncleanness, being under the authority of your husband, be immune to this water of bitterness that brings a curse. Okay, so this is a providential sign. Verse 20, Amy says, If you, however, have gone astray, being under the authority of your husband, and if you have defiled yourself, and a man other than your husband has had intercourse with you. Um, So the curse is the result of having been guilty of the charge. What am I missing here, Amy? Okay, Amy, come on board. Can you do that? Amy's got some thoughts and stuff. Verse 28 says, But if the woman has not defiled herself and is, in cl- and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. So I think my original assessment here was correct. This is a providential sign that is meant to determine whether or not she is guilty. That's all it is. It's not the punishment. Apparently, the punishment will be that she's not able to have children. So, uh, but if she's not, if she's innocent, then she will be able to have children. I, I don't so see. Idea. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, I, it just seems to me that all this is is a means by which they can determine whether she's guilty 
of the charge or not. That's all it is. So the, the idea is, in order to keep to protect her from harm from the dust of the floor and the ink of the writing, God has to do a miracle. God has to do what? A miracle. Because, well, you know, dust from the floor, ink, it isn't stuff that's usually good for people. Well, yeah, I, that I don't... I, I, yeah, I, look, at I could take dust from the floor just about anywhere... <clears throat> that I live, and if I drink it, I don't know that I'm going to get sick or anything weird's going to happen to me. You know, uh, the, regardless, the, it's being offered as a providential sign. That's all. It's not being offered as punishment. They presume she's guilty. They're using some kind of means that God prescribes to find out if she's guilty or not. I think the whole thing is kind of weird, especially in light of our own sensibilities. But I don't see any indication here that the woman is considered guilty until she's proven innocent. Innocent. What they are trying to find out is the charge against her and the, the um, uh, jealousy that her husband is expressing in light of his fear or concern or doubts about her fidelity will be resolved by a providential sign. And if she is guilty, then one thing will happen. And if she's not, if they have not defiled herself, then something else it says here, you will be immune to the water of bitterness, this verse 19, that brings a curse, if <clears throat> if you have not gone astray. If you have gone astray, then then and you, you, uh, if you have defiled yourself, that's something else. And that's why Amy oh, okay. said, read, read verse 28, if, if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, she will then be free and conceive children. I, um, I guess I just don't see it. I think this is weird. You know, some people yeah. have said this is a pro-abortion passage, which I don't get that at all. But in any event, um, I hope that calms your concerns about this passage. Yeah, I think it does. Okay, Glenn? Okay. Okay, good questions, though. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye now. All right, now we're going to move into some questions from our callers uh, through Open Mic Calls. And uh, remember, the way that Open Mic works is you can actually call your question in, either by calling on the phone to a number I'll give you in a moment, or by going on the website and recording it there. So if you want to record it on the website, you can go to our homepage, and then under Podcasts, and then Live Broadcasts, there's a feature there for you to record your Open Mic call. Or you can simply dial 857 Three four two five seven eight seven, and then leave your question there. That would be eight five seven dial str or eight five seven three four two five seven eight seven. Okay, so let let's start with Joseph. Okay, he's one of the uh, the dial in str um, callers, and uh, this is a very interesting question that Amy and I had to kind of ponder a little bit to figure out the best way to answer. So let's see what Joseph has to say about the Declaration. Hello, Mr. Kokel. My name is Joseph. I would like to hear your thoughts on the claim in the Declaration of Independence that God has endowed all people with certain unalienable rights, and whether or not there is biblical support for that claim. The Declaration gives three examples of God-given unalienable rights, and it's the claim that these rights are unalienable that I'm wrestling with. Mm -hmm. 
because unalienable means something that cannot be transferred to another or forfeited or taken away, and so the claim seems to be refuted by God's own laws and commands. In Genesis 9-6, God tells Noah, Whoso sheddeth man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. In Leviticus, we are given many examples of sins that carry the penalty of death, and in 1 Samuel, God commanded Saul to kill all the Amalekites mm-hmm. and is angry in part when Saul spares King Agag. So it would seem that there are sins that people can commit that God sees as severe enough that people can lose their right to life, mm-hmm. which would mean that the right to life is not unalienable. Mm-hmm. I feel very strongly that if we make the claim that God has done something, we should be able to find explicit or implicit biblical support for it. Mm-hmm. So if the claim is true, where can I find support for it in the Bible? Mm-hmm. Thank you for taking my question, and mm-hmm. I look forward to hearing your thoughts. Well, Joseph, it is really a good uh, question and a thoughtful one. The key here, it seems to me, is that is the, is what is meant by the authors of the Declaration by the concept of unalienable human rights delineated there that included the right to life. And your point is, well, if that's God-given, then it can't be, then the, then the right to life cannot be taken away. But it's clear that God um, has provided for the, the right to life to be taken away from people who are guilty of capital crimes, okay? And so God doesn't agree with that sense of unalienable right, and you use the dictionary to uh, indicate what you understood the word to mean. Well, apparently that is not what the founders, or the, the founders, the founding fathers, and the writers of the Declaration understood the word unalienable to mean either. And it's very clear to me, and to you too, when you think about it for a moment, Joseph, um, that um, the Declaration was given as an act of, of, of conscience statement to declare independence that would, which Declaration of Independence from England would lead to war and a loss of life. And much of the loss of life would be life taken by those who are on the side of the Declaration. So when the writers of the Declaration make reference to inalienable rights, they could not have meant that there was no occasion of any kind that could possibly justify taking a human life, like a capital crime or a just war, because they were entering into what they considered a just war with the Declaration itself. What they were saying, and I'm not exactly sure the best way to um, to characterize this, but I'm sure if you were reading more of the writings of those men, they could have, obviously, and there were a lot of them, and the Federalist Papers and all these other things. These are all the writings of the early Church, rather, the early founding fathers of this nation, giving justification based on the kind of 
beings humans were before God, giving justification for their rebellion because rights that accrued to them have been, in virtue of God creating them that way, have been denied them. And therefore, they could arm themselves for conflict. In fact, this is the very beginning of the Declaration before even <clears throat> those words, those famous words, appear. I don't have the Declaration right here in front of me, but um, it starts out, when in the course of human events, and that says something like, a, <laughs> a people decide to rebel against their sovereign, they better give a good reason. So here are our reasons. So notice, <clears throat> even those the the notion of inalienable human rights are, <clears throat> are are argued in favor of in the context of justifying rebellion and taking life in a war to secure those rights and liberties. So then the question means, well, what do they mean by inalienable rights when even they acknowledge that uh, that life could be taken away? And the answer is, is that life could be taken away without proper justification. That human beings are the kinds of beings created by God that are, that are um, in possession of particular liberties that ought to be theirs and not be, that are theirs and ought not be, therefore be violated. And these liberties in general, cannot be ignored. They cannot be alienated from man because by man, in general, because they were not given by men, but they were given by God. And I, I can't offer you, Joseph, the, the biblical case for all of these rights. What I thought was pretty important, though, valuable, is that they grounded their rights claim in the kind of creatures humans were. And uh, by the way, this is why it says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. Well, you don't murder because you have a right to life, and that right to life is not something that can just be disregarded. But notice murder is different than killing. Then there's a different word in Hebrew, just like in English. The prohibition isn't against killing, it is against unjustified killing. And so the understanding of the founders is that God, and given Genesis 9-6, which you cited, that, that the human beings are the kind of creatures that are protected by something that is true about them by nature. They're made in the image of God. And therefore, if you destroy the image of God, or rather destroy an image-bearer, then you sacrifice your own life in return. So it isn't a command against killing. It's a point that human beings are made in such a way, and the way they're made cannot be taken from them. That taking life, their life, requires justification, because they have a right to life in virtue of the way God made them, being made in His image. Okay, now that's the best way I can explain it, that humans, in virtue of having this right embedded, having this, this um, 
nature that God made in them, <clears throat> with transcendent value being made in His image, that what follows from that is a certain um, right or just claim to something um, that belongs to humans by nature. Even if sometimes that right to life is forfeit by the behavior of those humans um, in committing a capital crime. So uh, that would be the best way I, I could find to explain this. Good question, though. All right, how about Trent? Trent is next on the list there, and he has a question about Mr. Uh, I'm sorry, I just saw the note. Said Mr. Some note said Mr. Coco, C O C O. That's not how to spell it, but that's okay. Um, people have done that all my life. Okay, uh, what is Trent is asking about Matthew 24. Hi, Greg. This is Trent Blake. Um, in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 24, Jesus talks about the end times. While there is significant debate about what what was fulfilled in the first century and what will be fulfilled in the future. It is my impression that most Bible scholars agree that at least some parts of Jesus' predictions are yet to be fulfilled, even 2,000 years later. Mm -hmm. Yet Jesus says in Matthew 24, 34, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place, which most people take to mean that the people in that generation would not physically die before all the events occur. Mm -hmm. This assumption has caused even the great English theologian C.S. Lewis to conclude that Jesus was just, well, wrong here. Hmm. Others have gone the opposite route and appear to be in reinterpreting the predictions Jesus has made to make them fit into the first century. Mm -hmm. Recently, though, I've wondered if the assumption behind both sides of this issue is wrong. After all, isn't pass away an English idiom for death, not a first century Jewish one? Have we taken our 21st century idioms and applied them to phrases not meant to be taken that way by Jesus? I would like to hear your critique of my theory that this verse is best interpreted in the context of the following verse. Together, these verses read, quote, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away, not until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Mm -hmm. Additionally, in the NLT paraphrase, the translators use the term pass from the scene instead of pass away. Could Jesus simply have been saying that the first, center, first century generation would be included in the scriptures and would never pass from the scene until the end of the world? This would be a similar interpretation to Matthew 26, 13, where Jesus, Jesus predicts that the woman who washed his feet would be remembered in the Scriptures. Hmm. Thanks for your great work in theology and apologetics, and I look forward to your response. Thanks. Well, thank you, Trent. I think this is a difficult passage for uh, to, to kind of make sense of. I've wondered about this one myself, and there are a couple of different options, and uh, you mentioned some of them. I, I, I don't know that any of them are, <clears throat> pardon me, completely satisfying uh, to me. Um, uh, some have made the point that um, this generation, that word generation, could also be translated race. This race will not pass away before all these things take place. Maybe the ra race of the Jews, the Jews would not perish or something. It seems like an awkward translation. Uh, I had my kind of um, theological eye teeth cut on uh, Hal Lindsey's teaching, uh, many people associate him or know of him through his writings like The Late Great Planet Earth and Rapture and Second Coming stuff and all that, and I don't hold 
those same views anymore, not all of them. Um, but uh, I think Hal's view was that the generation that Jesus was referring to was the generation that would see these signs all come together at the same time. So all of these signs Jesus was referring to were signs that would happen within a single generation at the end of which he would return. And Hal thought that was this generation. Okay, uh, the, in other words, the extant generation. Now, he's in his 90s. I think he's still alive. He's in his 90s now. And uh, so that's kind of stretching the idea of generation. Biblical generation is 40 years, and uh, that was over 50, That was almost 50 years ago that I sat under his teaching. So I don't know. It's difficult. Um, maybe, maybe not. And uh, there, uh, there's another alternative, and I, I, you might have made reference to this, in passing, there's a lot of those things that you see in Matthew 24, uh, Luke 21, and Mark 11. Now, those are parallel passages of what's called the Olivet Discourse, one of Jesus' main discourses. He gave uh, four main discourses, the Sermon on the Mount, the Bread of Life Discourse, the Olivet Discourse, and the Upper Room Discourse. And that's, that's one-third of the Gospel of John, from chapter 13 through 17. Um, and so when you read all of those, all of the relevant passages about the Olivet Discourse, it does, it seems like Jesus is referring to a lot of things that were actually going to take place in his generation, and in fact did, because Jesus was teaching in the early 30s, and in 70, that's 40 years later, uh, there was a massive destruction of Jerusalem, and it does appear that quite a number of things that happened during that time fit the description that Jesus uh, offered in the Olivet Discourse. In fact, there were actually two assaults on Jerusalem. Uh, one was—no, um, I can't remember his name— <clears throat> But he laid siege to Jerusalem, and then the the um, uh, the the, uh, the Caesar died, and he was in line to become next Caesar. So he leaves, and then says Titus to finish the job. So there in sixty-eight or so, you've got one guy, and then you've got you know titus coming back to finish the job so you've got two phases of that and that seems to fit certain aspects of this prophecy and in 70 a.d under titus the temple was destroyed not one rock left on another now by the way that's hyperbolic because i've been to jerusalem and i've seen the temple mount and there are still rocks laying setting there one on top of the other that were part of the old temple that's what the wailing wall is but there's also piles of rocks still there, big giant stones that are like like a like a jumble that had been dis that had dis been part of the dismemberment of the temple. So um, there was a significant destruction there in 70 A.D. under Titus. Um, so one way of looking at this, and this is true of different prophecies that we see even in the Old Testament. Uh, regarding the Messiah, where there is a multiple fulfillment. You see one aspect of it done and in, in completed in one time, but then something else happening in the future. John the Baptist 
Well, what about John the Baptist? What about Elijah that is supposed to come? Well, Elijah has come, kind of, Jesus said. That was John the Baptist. But there does seem to be an Elijah in the future, kind of. So sometimes these prophecies have a dual fulfillment where portions of them, significant portions, are fulfilled at one point. But these are really, uh, but there's more to be done. And the stuff that happens in the future is like the stuff that happened earlier. Okay, this is just part of the mystery of prophecy, as far as I understand it. And so um, I think prophecy is hard. Now, um, it's kind of interesting when you think about it, um, the prophecies regarding Jesus' first coming. We look back on a lot of these things and we see a fit of these puzzle pieces. But prior to the time when they were fulfilled, some of these didn't seem to fit at all. I was just reading a psalm, Psalm 69, the other night. I just remember the number. And um, there are two passages in that psalm that are applied to Jesus' life. Zeal for my Father's house shall consume me, or something to that effect. And then there's another one. And I said, well, I recognize these. They're in the Gospels. But but they, you know, when I read them in the context of the psalm, it, I'm scratching my head. Well, it doesn't say, and in the future when the Messiah comes, then the CO4, his father's house, will consume him. There's, It's, it's a little bit um, veiled. But when these things take place, it seems like a bunch of these other things fit together. So... What I've learned from this, and this is what I apply to eschatology, there are lots of possibilities, and there are things that we really don't completely understand. And uh, that the fulfillment is the final interpretation. The fulfillment is the final interpretation. So when Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday— the disciples were obviously forlorn. They thought all was lost. And then, of course, Sunday came, and Jesus allegedly rose from the dead. People saw him. There's the empty tomb. What's up with that? And that was the subject of the conversation of those on that Sunday on the road to Emmaus. But what what's going on here? And of course, they encounter Jesus, who they didn't know was Jesus, and they have this conversation. At what are you the only one who don't know what's going on, and everybody else knows about it? And then they talk about what happened, and then what Jesus does is then he explains to them from the scriptures, from the Tanakh, from the from from the the law, and from the from the prophets, and from all of the scriptures. And I think. That means not every single Scripture refers to Jesus, but all portions of Scripture bear testimony to something important about Jesus, and it all fits together. And then he explains how the Messiah had to suffer and had to die and had to rise again. So after the fact, all of a sudden these things seem to fit together in a much more neat fashion. But before the fact— it's hard to figure out. And I think this is part of what we're facing here. The final 
powerful and conclusive return of Jesus has not happened. Some people think it has, that the language there was referring to something that happened, and now we're the second coming has already happened. And to which I respond, this is it? This is it? Really? Can't be. No, there's a prediction of that final powerful and conclusive return of Christ. He comes in the skies in the power with great glory, and the uh, the angels gather the elect from the four winds, and it's over. That seems to be part of the teaching of the Olivet Discourse. But there, when is that? That hasn't happened yet. But some of these other things have happened. And so you've got this confusing thing that some people think they've got all figured out I don't know. I think it's going to make sense, complete sense, when the fulfillment takes place, just like the first coming. And until then, we do the best we can, and we keep a loose grip on our theology about the second coming and not get too dogmatic, okay? That's my view, at least. Well, that's it for this hour, friends. Thank you for being part of it. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now.